Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I'm your host, Dwayne Mancini. As always, if you need anything from the podcast or would like to suggest a future guest, please email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. This is another episode of MedTech Money powered by Project MedTech. This is a special series by Project MedTech where we have partnered with Mr. MedTech himself, Giovanni Loricella, in a series of podcast episodes focusing on money in the MedTech space. Giovanni's guest today is Charlie Huner from Modulum. In this episode, Giovanni and Charlie discuss what they are doing at Modulum, the first money that came in the door, their different rounds of funding, how they made non-dilutive funding last so long, when it makes sense to pursue non-dilutive funding, why the name of your round matters, and more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Charlie Huner. Thank you very much for being here. We greatly appreciate your time and also what we're going to hear from the story about you being the CEO of Modulum. And for all those listening, this is the MedTech Money podcast series on Project MedTech, which is also sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. And Charlie, the reason why we're here today is I've talked to thousands of MedTech entrepreneurs and investors around the world. And I've discovered that there's no real silver bullet or specific formula about how to raise or invest capital in medtech. So I thought I'd have a goal to extract some insights and anecdotal stories from investors, investment bankers, entrepreneurs like yourself, so that we can help those who can benefit from the information and generations of whether it's investors or entrepreneurs to come. And so the audience likely is going to be a mixture of experts and novices listening in today. However, I wanted to extract your stories, insights, and advice so that we can share with what I imagine that first-time founder or CEO that has no clue on what lies ahead of them in the journey of raising capital. And so I thought the best place to start is learning from experienced professionals like yourself. And today, what I wanted to focus on is understanding what it looks and feels like to raise a round for a U.S. med tech startup that's going commercial, so a commercial round. And we'll get into the more details and dynamics of your story. And I wanna lead with three questions before we understand the man behind the Modulum company right now and also the, the capital raise. Um, and so who is Charlie, but we'll get to that in a second. My first few questions are, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup? Why or why not? Or am I missing anything else important? Yeah, thanks, Giovanni, and uh, appreciate uh, the opportunity to participate. And um, I think that's a great question. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of nuances to whether those are the only two lifebloods of a, of a med tech company. But I, I think they're certainly both cr critical um, and certainly symbiotic, i.e. I, I, the way I view it is you, you, you can't have a successful med tech company without people and without great people. Um, who all know how to fill their roles. Uh, and you certainly can't achieve what you need to achieve as a med tech company with good people unless you have capital. 
So in that way, uh, I think absolutely they're, they're critical. Uh, you could call them the lifeblood, uh, but and certainly you can call, I, I believe that they're symbiotic, that they're absolutely connected. Um, and, I, and what I would say is, um, the, the one final thing I would say is, you will always need good people to be successful. Um, but there are phases of the company where you need capital. And when you need capital, uh, because you've, you're either running out or you need to fund the next stage of, of, of growth or, uh, or execution, um, capital sort of comes to the, to the, top, of the uh, top of the pile in terms of need. So again, I do think that they're, they're both critical. Um, people are always the foundation, but there are times in, a, in, a, in, in, the, in the cycle of a, of a med tech company where, where capital sort of comes to the top. And now being the CEO of Modulum, and building that career to get you where you are now. If you knew what you know about being a med tech entrepreneur today, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? Or what would you do differently if you could? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely would, would do it all over again. Um, I, I didn't, uh, in my, it, with my experience, I didn't, you know, go out of college thinking I was going to get into, you know, medical technology. And I don't know many people who are that way. Maybe if you're a bioengineer or something like that, but I, I was a history major in college. I was an investment banker after college. I went to business school and then I went and did real estate private equity. So I had a, a pretty circuitous route uh, uh, into medical technology, um, which is probably you know, the way a lot of people get into it. But now that I've been in it over 20 years, um, and working in various sectors of medical technology, I absolutely would, would not change a thing. Um, I think the consistent stream throughout my career in med tech that has really motivated me and as sort of driving my answer here is that, you know, every company I've been with uh, is an opportunity to change people's lives and uh, in a very direct way. Uh, and and I, again, I'm not sure every single sector uh, in our economy is that way, but certainly med tech is that way. We're, and, 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 and getting back to your original question on my, my role in a commercial company, when you get to commercial stages, you're at a point where your technology, your medical technology is primed to be uh, put into the market to help people and to help people's lives uh, by definition. And that's something that I, I don't regret at all and would do it all over again. And Lastly, the name Modulum, the name of your company, what does that mean? What's the story behind that? Yeah, uh, it's, it's, there's probably uh, less to it uh, than, than you might think, but uh, the original name of the company going back 15 years uh, from the founder, David Kusia, who, who spun the company out of UC Irvine, was Modulated Imaging. And Modulated Imaging is a mouthful. And uh, I think it certainly made sense for the first 10 or 15 years of the company when it was really more of a research company um, selling instruments and devices, optical instruments and devices that were really used by academic labs. Modulated imaging sort of feels that way. But when we got to a point where we started to transfer into uh, uh, devices that would go into a clinician's hands and marketing became more important to the company, I think the company did the smart thing by shortening modulated imaging to modulum. And that's, that's where we are today. Nice. 
So without further ado, we've been hearing you answer some of my questions, but we have to learn who you are. So tell us about who Charlie is, where do you come from, and how'd you get to where you are today? Sure. Yeah. And I, I gave a little bit of uh, some background, but just to, again, follow up on my previous answer, um, I, I've been I've been in medical technology for, for 20 years, um, a little over 20 years and, and really a mix of, of, of various uh, companies. Uh, a lot of that time spent in medical aesthetics, um, which is one way to impact lives. Uh, you know, speaking of confident, bringing confidence to people and uh, allowing them to feel better about themselves. And that was a, that has been a wonderful journey and I'm still involved in medical aesthetics. I sit on some boards and I, I have a great network there and love that time. And then I also have spent some time uh, within uh, telemedicine and telehealth. I was part of the management team at InTouch Health, which really was the, the first and leading um, sort of full solution medical telemedicine company recently acquired by Teladoc. And that was another great experience where I, I ran marketing and business development there. So, um, you know, again, in terms of my background, uh, I, you know, came into business in a bit of an untraditional way, um, you know, having been a history major in college, but, um, you know, throughout, throughout my career uh, to get to this point, uh, again, I think I've, 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 I've found the right mix of uh, sort of tactical skill set. I did a lot of, I've done a lot of deal making in my background, probably stemming from my investment banking days and private equity days, uh, which, which has sort of brought me to a point where I then um, cut my chops um, as I got into medical technology um, in operating roles, uh, roles around corporate development, business development, marketing, um, and, and, and then operations and manufacturing. So uh, I've worn a lot of hats in my career, as you can probably sense from the answer. And I, I think that that, that that myriad of roles that I've played along the way has really informed my ability to ultimately take a CEO role, uh, which is where I am today with Modulum. And you've done that all over the US? Yeah, I've, uh, I've uh, skipped across the country. Um, you know, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, which I believe we have a connection there, Giovanni. I was hoping um, you'd mention that. Yeah, we're both from <laughs> Buffalo. <laughs> we're both from Buffalo. And uh, and then I went to Williams College in Massachusetts and spent some time in New York City sort of doing the traditional banking thing. Went to Kellogg and Nor uh, Northwestern for business school. So kind of started my way across the country, uh, ended up in Santa Fe and then San Diego and, and now Santa Barbara. So what I say to everybody is I've kept you know, going to, you know, an, each each city I've gone to has been more luxurious than the next. And I don't know where I can go from here. That's going to be better for my friends to come and my family to come visit. But uh, I've lived in Santa Barbara the last 20 years, and it's a wonderful place to live. It's an absolutely beautiful place. And so is Santa Fe, by the way. I love Santa Fe. Yeah. Second favorite. Yeah. So then now tell us about Modulum. So we know who you are. We got some background on that. But tell us about what you guys are developing, the little bit of a history on the company. And then let's end up on talk about the, the financing history of the company and where are we today? Yeah, yeah. So, so Modulum, as I mentioned earlier, uh, previously modulated imaging really uh, uh, had its genesis uh, out of UC Irvine, the Beckman Laser Institute. Uh, and the founder, David Kusia, who was doing his PhD uh, work and dissertation on optical technology there, um, you know, very smart guy, obviously, and um, saw an opportunity to leverage optical technology 
to uh, create, uh, a, a, in a sense, a device that could measure uh, microvascular uh, perfusion and oxygenation uh, in a non-contact way using light, uh, right? So um, uh, really uh, unique and novel approach. Uh, I mentioned non-contact. Um, so, you know, the company itself uh, sells a device that basically is a camera system, an optical system that measures, again, microvascular uh, 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 perfusion and hemoglobin markers without having to uh, use a dye of any sort and without having to penetrate the skin. So really, really cool and unique technology. And again, the genesis of the, of the technology originally was um, to allow uh, academic institutions and researchers to use this device. And it was a much bulkier device at, the, at that point to do, do studies and to do research. And that was the first 10 years of the company. Uh, the company was founded with, uh, you know, quite a bit of NIH money, which we can get into in terms of fundraising. And, and there's a whole story there around uh, that approach to, um, you know, sort of starting and growing technology and building technology to scale and to a commercial stage. Uh, but again, I give the, I give the founder and the, and the founding team, and back to your question on people, uh, all the credit for uh, getting through the early stages, um, getting that technology, that optical technology that I described to a point where uh, it could first be introduced into research settings. And then over the last five years, really, um, the company has sort of taken a turn uh, and has begun a, a, a more focused effort on clinical usage and, uh, and did that through refinements of the technology uh, and began raising money, uh, actually, you know, venture money, starting with seed money um, to, again, begin to uh, transfer the company from a research-oriented instrumentation company into a, a, a real clinical medical device company. And, and that's where we are today. In terms of the clinical applications, um, just to answer sort of the fullness of your question on who is Modulum, um, where we've arrived uh, over the last five years using this core optical imaging technology is the ability for clinicians to use our diagnostic technology, our optical technology, to measure those hemoglobin markers uh, uh, in patients uh, to enable uh, clinicians a view as to microvascular compromise and uh, to help identify risk in, uh, that can often lead to diabetic foot ulcers and amputations. And so we've really honed in on the lower limb and on the foot uh, and being able to use our imaging technology to identify and screen risk and then allow those clinicians to send those patients on for interventional treatments that can help resolve those issues and avoid those really, really chronic, uh, nasty uh, uh, issues that happen with, with a lot of patients, particularly diabetic patients, kidney disease patients, and PAD patients. Uh, and so that's really the clinical focus of the technology now. And so if we look at the history of the fundraising for the company, you mentioned that there's a story around the NIH. Um, we'll get into it. I definitely want to hear that. Let's talk about that outside money for the first time. So and I know that you're raising around now, where are we? Is it seed, series A, series B? Where, where are we with that story? Yeah, so uh, just quickly to, to um, sort of anchor the conversation. So I joined Modulum in December of last year, so December 20. So I've been here about eight months, I guess it is now. And I was brought in by the board and the management team to really um, fill a role that was, was lacking of uh, somebody who has experience uh, with commercial scaling, excuse me, and also raising money. 
those were the two sort of fundamental things that I remember in my first interview for this role. Uh, the board member asked me to describe my experience raising money and uh, helping companies scale. And I, I think this is a very common uh, uh, need, particularly with founder-led companies. At some point, as you get into obviously pre and then commercial scaling, uh, you, need to, you need to have a team and in particular a CEO who knows how to do it, who's done it before and who can uh, connect the dots between what a company needs to grow and to be successful commercially and how to tell a story and able to attract capital and confidence in being able to execute on that story. So that's a little bit of sort of my tie into where the company is, but backing up from there to, uh, you know, sort of the, 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 the evolution of the company taking outside money. Um, it started with seed, uh, seed money. Uh, and again, this was back probably about maybe a little over five, six years ago when, the, when I mentioned the company made that transition from research into a view towards a, a med tech commercial company. Um, they were funded initially with the seed, seed uh, funding led by uh, the co-fund out of UC Irvine. Um, which does a lot of angel investing and seed investing. And obviously there was a nice connection already there with uh, David and his team coming out of UC Irvine and, and a nice uh, sort of ecosystem connection there. That was the first money that came in that wasn't NIH money. And then uh, the company did a series A. Uh, I want to say it was in the sort of 2017 timeframe, uh, raised two, more, 2 million uh, then, and then did a series B round um, upon uh, getting an FDA clearance as a 510K device 2000, early 2019, and they brought in about $7.5 million. So all in through those rounds of seed through Series B, the companies, and I say this with, great, uh, with a great compliment to the team, they've been able to get, we've been able to get to a point where we've got a commercial stage technology that's FDA cleared, has a CE mark, and has a unique reimbursement code all critical inflection points and gates for a company like ours with only $10 million of, of dilutive equity capital raise, all because the company was able to do so much with that NIH money early on. So I've talked about this on the, on the importance of non-dilutive money, if it makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't make sense for companies, um, but there's a, a brilliant story from an entrepreneur that I've recently heard of that he's raising the first dilutive money now and was able to get 25 million in non-dilutive funding wow. um, yeah. out of government grants. But I mean, and we walked through the strategies on that and it was just phenomenal to understand how if properly executed on non-dilutive funding, you can actually take a company fairly far where that when you do have to finally go look outside for dilutive funding, the, sh the story could be much shorter and actually very attractive for certain styles of investors. So leading to that, before we go into where you are raising now, let's hear that NIH story. Let's hear what they were able to accomplish from the NIH to then bring them to that outside money, because I think that's very important to share. Yeah, and and uh, and I wish I I was there to tell the the in the trench stories of all the work that went into um, being able to raise that money. Uh, but I can speak in in generalities about it and sure. uh, for your audience. Um, obviously, raising r raising money from the NIH or other agencies, it, there is a very very strict process that you have to go through, and it takes time, right? So yeah. Some of the challenge I would say for companies who want to go that route 
is often the, the timeline necessary to, to qualify for the grants or qualify for the money that's available um, takes so much time that what do you do in the interim? How do you fund the company in the interim? So I don't, like I said, I don't have the gory details, but I can guess that there were a lot of, you know, white knuckle moments for David and his team as they were going through the process of applying for these government grants, waiting to hear the answers while they had, you know, a few people that they were trying to employ and, and technology in the lab that they were continuing to develop. But I do think for the right medical technology companies um, who have the right sort of mix of you know, timeline and other resources, it is a phenomenal way to non-dilutively get your technology or your idea to the point where you've, you can begin to see some proof of concept and can begin to see a road ahead for, uh, for a commercial path. And uh, again, in the case of Modulum, I wish I knew the exact amount of money, but it was definitely over $10 million of NIH money that went into you know, the early instrumentation and technology that made its way into a research device that they did sell. I mean, so it wasn't that they gave the device away for free, but they were selling it, like I mentioned, to uh, big, uh, uh, big labs, uh, college, camp, uh, college uh, you know, bioengineering labs and things like that, and also big companies. I believe uh, I, I, it was, it's either Apple or Google has one of the early modulated imaging uh, optical devices. I, can't, I don't know which of the two. I know it's one of them. Um, so uh, again, my guess is David and the team at that time thought maybe they were going to be a research company, that they were going to be you know, creating research instrumentation. At some point along the way, I think recognized um, the clinical power of the of the technology and realized that the path forward really was to commercialize this in, with a clinical use case. And that's where uh, the, they flipped the switch and uh, began to take on outside money and, and transition the company. But again, I think back to um, NIH uh, and other government funding, uh, military funding, uh, uh, I'm sure you've heard that from a lot of uh, your entrepreneurs is another way to, to go where you've got a device that clearly can help our soldiers in one way or the other. It's very common for med tech companies to be founded on money like that as well. Um, VA money, et cetera. They all have their own traps and pitfalls. And I think, again, back to the, to give you a concrete vision of why that is, it's because it's such a regimented process. So if you, if you go into it, again, for your, for your listeners, um, read up and, you know, and find experts. Each of those various um, tranches of, of, of capital, of non-dilutive capital, there is a whole ecosystem around how to, how to uh, apply for those, for those grants and that money, um, you know, what's the best way forward. There, is ton, there are tons of consultants who are out there to help you. And I would urge your listeners, if they're looking to go that route, is uh, be very smart about it before you jump in and, and get help. And so then moving towards the dilutive funding and that path, so they raise seed round series A and series B, or are you raising the series B now? We're, we're raising a series C um, series right C. now. But okay. I, I, again, just to uh, share my perspective on letters, um, I think letters uh, are, are, are more of a trap uh, and, and a hindrance, and I'm speaking from my own experience, in terms of you know, the phasing of your company, where you really are, and, and how your story may or may not resonate with a prospective investor, then they are a help. Uh, and I can speak to Modulum as a great example of that, right? Because if you hear our story, 
seed series a series b we've raised 10 million dollars and we have a you know we have an fda cleared device we have a ce mark device we've got a, a proprietary uh reimbursement code for our device um it kind of feels like a late stage story well the reality is that um you, you know when you when you add it all together and you throw COVID into the mix and you throw you know we we, we launched the the device a little over two years ago we're really sort of a series A, B in terms of the way I would view and the way I would align the, the, the scaling and where we are uh, in the evolution of the company. But the official letter is series C. And, and I think there's a real lesson there, a lesson that I've learned and my team has learned along the way of, of, of fundraising, because we're out raising $20 million right now to really fuel our commercialization strategy and our solution roadmap. Which, both of which are really crisp in terms of you know, what we think we can do and the inflection points that we can hit. But what we have found in a lot of our discussions with a lot of the growth investors, um, some of which I think you've just recently had on your, on your podcast, uh, is that um, they're looking to see more revenue right now for a Series C company. So it becomes almost immediately disqualifying. Once you put a letter like a Series C, and then that triggers in the investors had, oh, okay, how much revenue do you have? And as you know, Giovanni, many of these funds, particularly now, I don't think this was the case 10 years ago. In fact, I know it's not because I was raising money 10, million, uh, 10 years ago with some of these very same funds today. And I'll, I'll just digress here quickly. Uh, Galen Capital is, uh, is, is a really, really solid, collaborative healthcare med tech investor um, they invested in InTouch Health. I know that team very well when I was at InTouch Health on the management team. I reached out to them six, seven months ago when I joined Modulum. And, uh, and, the, and the partner who was on our board at InTouch, I said, hey, you know, Dave, I, I just joined this great company. Here's what we're doing. He said, time out. Charlie, I love what you're doing. It makes a lot of sense. We don't even invest anymore in companies unless they're at $10 million of revenue. So we could, even if I wanted to invest in your idea, and I really believe a lot in you, um, I couldn't, but come back to me when you get to $10 million. So that's a theme. And it's a, it's a lesson that I've been learning, having spent some time away from the private markets. I spent six years at a publicly traded med tech company. So now I'm back private. That's a bit of a new paradigm. And it's, it's been a lesson learned for me. And I think for your less listeners to understand that letters do matter being commercial stage and where you are in commercialization does matter. And it really informs a profile of what kind of investor uh, is ready to invest in your idea or your company. And I'm so glad that you brought that topic up. I wanted to get to it anyway, because I know that you and I have talked about this in the past, but the most traditional sense, and yes, there's always been exceptions, but when you think of med tech, right, you have your seed fund, which leads you to your series A. And that seed fund should really be working on R&D and prototyping, et cetera. When you get to series A, obviously there's team expansion. Um, there should be more R&D putting in place, quality systems, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But by the end of that series A, that's leading you to series B, there should be some sort of um, first in man if you're doing clinical trials and or um, design freeze on the device, where then if you're going to raise series B, series B, when you think about it classically, is going into clinicals and should lead you to some sort of regulatory clearance or approval. And then if you're gonna raise Series C, it's that very classical commercialization phase 
where you're either going to blow out a commercial round and the rounds are sometimes 30, 40, 50, 100 million, whatever it may be. So that's the most traditional sense. But, you know, to your point on boxing yourself on these letters, I'm having more and more conversations with people raising post seed rounds. And I say, well, what's a post seed round? And well, it comes after the seed round. Well, isn't that an A round? <laughs> and yeah. then they're raising a pre-seed round. Well, I'm like, well, isn't that the family and friends round? What happened to the family and friends and then the seed and the series? A? So there's all these micro rounds and then there's series A1 or series A2 um, and they're breaking them out into various components. And, and the challenge with that is when you speak with the philosophies of investors who classify themselves and they will right. typically classify themselves as a certain stage investor, like maybe they don't fund R&D projects and they do do clinical trials and commercialization, but they'll typically say we invest in series B, series C, um, or if they're an early stage investor, we typically, we may not get involved in seed sometimes depending we're a venture capital firm, it might be a little too light for us, but we definitely classify ourselves as a series A investor. So there are these traditional letters that the investors associate themselves with. And if that story, and the story is really all that the investor has. I mean, obviously there's tangibles that back up the story, management teams, products, market size, et cetera. But if you can't tell the story of, hey, I'm raising $10 million Series A or a 15 million Series B, whatever it may be, if you're sending out these executive summaries with an email to investors saying raising Series B investment opportunity, and they're not a Series B investor, they're typically a Series C or onward, but you're commercial, that might automatically have an investor not even open up that email because yeah. it doesn't align with what they're mm -hmm. thinking. So mm -hmm. to your point, boxing yourselves into these letters could also be a downfall. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you, you know, far be it for me to try to disrupt a very stable, you know, well-oiled uh, investment machine between, you know, investors and med tech. I mean, we've gotten here and evolved here, like I mentioned, you know, over the years, I was here 10 years ago raising money at InTouch, and here I am raising money 10 years later at Modulum. And, and letters, in my mind, may mean a lot more now than they did back then. And, and for, for probably good reasons, some of the reasons that you mentioned, which is, you, you know, there's become, a, I think, a much greater stratification from investors in terms of how they want to apply their, their, partners, their partnerships money and what, how, they, how they raise their own money, right? I mean, the reality here, and again, for your listeners, is that there's a whole sort of system here in place for how money flows. And I think a lot of uh, uh, management teams or, or CEOs who are raising money who haven't done it before don't necessarily appreciate uh, that the venture investor who's investing has just gone out and raised their own money and therefore, they've already created their own expectations. They have expectations and, and requirements that they need to meet for the money that they've raised that they're deploying on behalf of their, their, uh, their limited partners. So the, again, I don't want to be, uh, 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 I'm sure a lot of people know that, but I think a lot, of, a lot of CEOs don't know that when they go out and raise money. And that has informed the way that the world works today in terms of, you know, med tech funding and, and all technology funding and the use of letters and, 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 the, and the identification of early stage versus later commercial stage. But back to your question and, and the point I made at the beginning, it's a, it can be a trap 
for those going out and raising monies that you've really got to be careful around. And if it were up to me, I would do away with letters and I would be more descriptive about it, right? And that's what we've tried to do. That's what I've tried to do. And frankly, I feel like uh, I and my team have had a lot more success over the last few months in fundraising and telling our story by removing the letter. Now, it doesn't mean that at some point, if, the, if they don't ask the question, well, what have you raised? Well, we've raised up uh, our Series B and we're at a, I mean, I can tell the story. But what I'm saying now is, well, you know, we're, we're a Series C company. We're effectively at a Series A, B stage. Now, that also is a trap, right? Because it's so, you know, you never, when you say something like that, then you've got to put yourself in the shoe of the investor. Well, what does that mean? Are you, have you guys not been able to get enough done with your series A and B money? Um, what, so it is a really, really challenging process. And I'm not trying to scare anybody, but um, you know, back to just trying to be very direct with my, my guidance and input. Um, I, 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 look, every med tech company has its own story and it's unique. Um, and so tell your story with that. That's just legitimate and authentic and truthful about how you've come to a certain point where you're looking to raise money and tell your story about what you're going to be doing with that money and how that's going to help the company and those great people around you achieve some really, really uh, positive value inflection points and allow that to lead and then allow the letter to come in last. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, it means we're at a commercial stage. We're early in commercialization. Um, we've, and for our story, we've only raised $10 million of dilutive equity capital. So we've got a really clean capital stack for any new investor looking to put money in right now. And we have a vision here now that we're at commercial stages to deploy our technology into the market in this way. And by doing so, um, we, we believe that this, this can be very much be the last capital in to get us to EBITDA positive. And here's how we'll do it. So you can tell the story um, allow the investor to, to categorize you the way that he or she typically will do that, but don't fall into the trap, which immediately has you sort of on your back foot explaining, well, well, we're Series C, but we're, you know, it, it, so it's, it's challenging, but um, it's certainly been a lesson learned for me and my team. So for those listening who may think that once you finally have your executive summary or pitch deck and your story down and you're going to go out and hit it and even if you're ready to receive all the no's and continue going forward, um, there's not one sticking point or one sticking story. It's a constant evolution of learning from peers, contacts, feedback, investors. And there's this evolution of telling that story over time. It's not like you sit down at the end of the year in December, you create this great story that you're going to launch in January, and you just go January, February, March, April, May, June until someone says yes to the same story. There's this evolutionary process, right? So absolutely, with the eight months that you've been there, this baton that was given to you, like you mentioned in your interview process, you were asked your commercial scalability experience and your fundraising experience. So then someone gave you the baton and you had this initial story that you were going to go out and leverage your know-how of raising capital. But now eight months later, I'm assuming that there's been some evolution behind that you've learned and, and you've alluded to it already on what you've been sharing. But let's talk about that eight months. Like, Tell us the mechanics behind that the personal anecdotal stories that go with your company that the listeners could pull out the generalities that may be applicable to them. But tell us about 
where you started and then what you slowly learned over the way and then where you are today and how does that change? Yeah. Uh, and, and we've used the word evolution, but, but I, I, I think it can't be overused in the process of um, you know, med tech fundraising. And, uh, and I would say um, there are probably very few companies, unicorns that go out and have such a powerful story that they immediately get to yeses. And it's, uh, you know, it's a glorious two month process and they get to a closing. Um, I, I think more, more of the time, um, it's situations like I and my team have faced where you have a really good story, uh, but there are some pieces missing or some pieces that need to be told better. Um, for me personally and for Modulum, uh, and I, I did know this coming in, um, I had a sense coming in that, um, that the commercialization uh, strategy and plan, execution plan, uh, uh, had some gaps. Uh, and so I'll just be very honest about that. I, you, you know, and 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 I think that that's a pretty common thing, right? When you're bringing in a new CEO, there's a reason they brought in a new CEO, right? Which is there were some gaps in uh, the board and the team's belief in, um, you know, where the company should be and what they need to do uh, to be successful. For me and for Modulum, um, it, it, you know, we're we're introducing a new technology into the market. This is a new technology. Uh, and so, um, so there's a lot of classical things that have to go into planning. How do you bring a new technology to the market and commercialize it? So I brought that certainly with me. I had gone through a very cynical, a very similar journey at InTouch Health with telemedicine technology. Uh, so I had a good sense that um, we needed to spend some time as a team early on in me coming on board, really validating our our commercial entry strategy with our technology. And that, that word right there, market entry, is a really, really critical word for med tech, particularly for companies that are introducing new technologies. Um, and there's a very classical pattern for how markets adopt technology. And if you, if you as a company and as a team don't go through a, a disciplined process to understand those patterns, understand where you are with the technology, understand who the buyer ultimately the user of the technology might be and how you can scale that technology, it's gonna be a long road. And that is what came before me at Modulum, which was a couple year road of not really, and again, COVID didn't help, but of not really having all the pieces in place to, uh, to, to create an execution market entry uh, approach. And that's what I did for my first few months in parallel with building the pitch deck and getting all the pieces together, the mechanics together to go out and pitch the company. So again, every company has its own story. That was my story at Modulum. And it certainly brought some challenges. You can imagine, you know, here I am trying to work with the team on some critical elements of the commercial uh, execution strategy, while at the same time preparing a pitch for a Series C commercial stage company um, and doing that in parallel. So that's a little bit of the uniqueness of where we, where we are. The evolution sort of came naturally, right? Um, as, you know, as I had and, and, and uh, my partner, uh, uh, Aman Mazar, who's, who's really been um, working hand in hand. And we can talk a little bit more about that also, Giovanni, uh, uh, about, you know, the CEO and, and uh, other team members and what's, you know, what's the right mix of the CEO selling the story and, and other members of the management team. But in, our, in my case, uh, it's been uh, really, really helpful 
to have uh, uh, our, our chief product officer who really has the technical chops and understands the technology really, really well and the clinical application of that technology really, really well to be a partner to me as I've gotten up the curve and, 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 and selling the and pitching the story. But just to finalize the on the last question and the evolution, it does take a few months and it did take us and take me personally a few months to one, organize the company in a way that, and align the company in a way that we really felt we had confidence to be able to paint a picture of commercial scaling because I needed to be able to paint that same picture and I need to be able to paint that same picture to an investor, right? I mean, who's going to invest in a commercial stage company if you can't paint a vision for how you're going to scale the, the technology, generate revenue, generate EBITDA, and ultimately generate a return on an exit for the investor. So that's that's the evolution. Uh, and, and there's no shortcutting that. There just isn't. So I have a lot of questions coming off of that. And I'm going to probably not answer them in the proper order, um, or I should say ask them in the proper order, but it's good information either way. So let me get this one out of the way. Um, <clears throat> you're raising capital for commercial expansion, albeit your experience having been eight months with Modulum now, but from what you know and the investors that you've reached out to, et cetera, what do you think is the difference in the story or what's important for the investors to listen to or pay attention to or the metrics that they really care about? What's the difference of raising money for a commercial company for expansion versus all those listeners out there who are probably wanting to learn more about the raising of the capital experience and they're raising that series A or seed money or series B and they might be dealing with angel groups or maybe early stage VCs, right? And they're understanding what it might look like in the future to raise commercial stage money. But just so we know about that that linear line from R&D yeah. to commercial and what's most important when pitching on these different rounds. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know, look, we, we, could, we could deep dive into this. I'll, I'm giving you the entrepreneur's perspective, the CEO's perspective. Uh, I'm sure you know, you've got the investor's perspective on this too. Let me try to connect the dots there. Uh, and again, um, if it's, it, to put it in a word of advice to the CEO, um, you really do have to try to put yourself in the shoes of the investor as you sort of create the picture of, uh, 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 as a commercial company, as you paint the picture of what you uh, expect to do with the funds and how you expect to apply those funds to generate revenue and scale. Um, and what I mean by that is, as you get into the later letters, the B's and the C's and the D's, um, you, you know, by definition, those investors um, are doing their own modeling on your company and on the belief of what you what they think the team can do with that that technology and how they how uh, how they believe you can scale that revenue and ultimately it comes down to an exit of some sort they're modeling an exit of some sort um, based on 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 you know their belief and and what what you know what the story is on the commercialization and they're modeling an exit based on an exit value and based on their entry value right? How much are they putting in? How much of the company are they going to own by putting that amount of money in? Is the company going to need to get more money in in the future to achieve uh, the objectives? And that all goes into their mix, right? And, uh, and, and it, that, along with some other intangibles, is how they're going to be making their investment decision um, on your company. And so as a management team, as a CEO, 
yeah, you, you know, you particularly at a commercial stage, you've got to put yourself in the shoes and then almost deconstruct or back your way into, okay, well, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting you want to tell a story. Uh, it's got to be legitimate, right? You've got to paint a legitimate picture for how you're going to take those funds with where you are today, with what infrastructure you have in place today, um, from a selling perspective, from a marketing perspective, from an R&D perspective, and, um, and, and use all those resources and assets to build towards value inflection points. I mean, that, that is just, again, there's no shortcuts to that. And, and, and then I think that that's when you start to think about how you tell your story and how you begin to, you know, sort of in a very disciplined way, walk that investor through, you know, that, that whole journey, the whole journey of, okay, we're looking for $20 million. Um, here's what our business looks like today. Here's how we'll begin to apply those funds and scale. Um, here's our market entry strategy. It, right. And, and, and so you're, you're trying to answer as many questions that you know are there uh, as you can, as you tell, as, as you tell your pitch or you tell your story. We often hear what investors look for in very early stage companies, R&D phases is, especially at the seed level, um, it's much more about investing in the people because likely that technology is going to change, evolve many yep. times. And so it's the trust and the belief in the people, the passion and the interest of having those people stick with the company to be able to eventually create something that will have legs to it. Mm -hmm. um, that's on the early stage, but as a company gains traction, hits milestones, grows, evolves, then you get down to that clinical stage. And then now here we are at commercial stage. Is it fair to say that it's, it's almost two totally different style investors where the early stage investors are much more people and tell me the story of the market and let's just hang tight for a long while and build a partnership together? Not that other late stage investors don't, but yeah. as that company is de-risked, looking at a commercial stage company, is it much more objective and show me the money, show me the numbers, show me the growth plan and yes, I need a good team in there. Yes, I need everyone to be able to execute and work well together, but it becomes much more about the actual numbers and technology rather than do these people know each other for a bunch of years that are going to stick together and hopefully create something great. And that's why I'm giving them seed capital. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's hard to answer that with a definitive yes or no, but I will say, I think directionally that is true. I think directionally, as you get into commercial stage companies, and I just sort of walked your listeners through that. Um, there, there are certain things, um, and I already mentioned. Yeah, you know, uh, like I said, with with my uh, uh, my former investor at InTouch, Galen, when he told me, "Look, Charlie, we can't even if I wanted to invest in your company. Our mandate to our uh, to our limited partners is we're not going to invest in companies that don't have ten million dollars of revenue as a starting point." Right. That's a great tangible example of what is reality now as you move from early R&D stage technology development, uh, you know, clinical study uh, development uh, 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 types of companies to, you know, commercial stage FDA cleared or FDA approved, um, you know, you know in-man commercially ready companies. They are now looking for, and so the reason that it's not definitive is they're still looking for people, but they're, looking for different kinds of, 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 of people and, uh, and execution uh, uh, and experience. 
um, which is, again, one of the reasons why, you know, I'm here at the company now, uh, leading the company, right? Because at some stage, um, you know, the ability to tell the story to investors, there needs to be credibility, right? You need to be able to point to a CEO and a management team who's done it before, um, who, who has seen the patterns before and who, and ha, who, has, who has, you know, the, the, you know, the scars to, to prove it. And, and so, um, so that, yes, there's an element of sort of formulaic uh, numbers and commercial metrics. And then there is an element of people, but I think it's much more around experience and belief. An investor's belief that this team, and, and in particular the CEO and that person running the commercial organization has done it, has a track record, knows what they're doing, can explain to me how they're going to take this capital, deploy it, and ultimately drive this company to revenue scale, EBITDA positive, and an exit. So you mentioned the $10 million market. I'm sure you're getting a bunch of feedback from various investors that you're reaching out to. Yeah. Coming back in the private market, like you mentioned, off for six years in, in corporate, is there this graveyard effect? And we've heard this in other stages of, of companies, but where you have companies that only will invest in R&D because they consider themselves early stage, only ones that invest in that clinical stage and getting them to that regulatory approval. Um, and then now we have these commercial ones, like the example that you've been providing, the ones that need 10 million in revenue or more. Is there this new graveyard effect where finally a company has achieved regulatory clearance or approval and they're just about to launch and now they finally have the blessing from the governmental bodies to be able to, or the regulatory bodies rather, to be able to go out and finally sell their product, yeah. but they might not have a dollar of revenue, or maybe they're making hundreds of thousands their first year, not millions. And all of a sudden that company like yours is trying to grow um, and you don't have that 10 million. Is there a bunch of investors that now are just missing this graveyard gap of <laughs> regulatory clearance and approval, but yeah. a little revenue or none to that new 10 million mark? Yeah, I've never heard the word graveyard. I, 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 I don't, I don't want to think of ourselves as in the graveyard, but I, I, I hear, I, I, I get the point. And, um, and it is, and it is apropos uh, for Modulum in that what, what, what I'm calling us is a tweener. Um, you know, we're a tweener right now that it speaks exactly to your point. It's a company that, you know, took funding and has achieved some really uh, clear de-risking milestones. And those commercial de-risking milestones, in our case, it's an FTA clearance, it's a CE mark, and it's a, a, and it's a, a reimbursement code that uh, can then, uh, uh, that you can then orient a business model and a, a revenue model around, i.e. in a fee-for-service world, a clinician can use this device and can charge money and can get a payback on acquiring the technology. Those are obviously those two things, uh, a commercial approval and a, a payment mechanism uh, are critically important for med tech devices, right? Uh, we have both those, but we haven't yet proven out the market entry uh, scaling story. Uh, we're in the process of doing that. And so the tweener is we need investors who are ready to, to sign up to be part of this and to drive our journey and to participate in our journey, recognizing that we have not yet achieved, whether it's the $10 million of revenue, I'll, I'll just give your listeners other metrics that we've heard from growth investors, $5 million revenue run rate uh, a quarter. Uh, you know, there's all, there's all series of 
What is that minimum baseline revenue that tells a growth investor that this is not going to be a zero? I, you know, it's a, it is a really, really, um, in some ways, fascinating, in many other ways, frustrating process. Because you can do all you, you can to point the investor to the, uh, the opportunity, the technology, the, uh, the revenue scale opportunity, the fact that the company you know, is capitalized a certain way. Um, but at the end of the day, um, they're all doing their own calculus. And, uh, and uh, you know, you're going to hear a lot of no's. You're going to hear a lot of no's and you're going to get a lot of feedback. And I think that that's, um, that's the thing back to the evolution that's important for the, uh, for the entrepreneur is to, um, is to be, uh, uh, to be uh, resolute through the stages of uh, pitching, recognizing you're going to get some no's, you're going to get some feedback, but, uh, but then using that, those no's and that feedback to sharpen your pitch and to organize the story in a way that, uh, you know, that better resonates and better connects. Because at the end of the day, it's storytelling, uh, and I don't mean that to 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 say that you know you're you're uh, you're not being truthful, but you're you, you know you've got to learn how to characterize the opportunity and have it resonate with your investor, and and that's whether you're in a C round, a Series B round, or a Series D round. Um, but you know, back back to your question and and back to my experience, um, you, you know, it's uh, you, if you don't evolve, you're you're not going to raise the money. So I definitely like your terminology tweener. It's much more, I think what you said, apropos and, and fitting for the storytelling. I use graveyard because a lot of other people say valley of death and I was just switching it up. A bit, yeah. Creating my own <laughs> vernacular. Um, so my, my next question comes back to that interview process that you mentioned of what you got hired, the commercialization and scaling experience and the fundraising experience. You mentioned historically in your career, you were investment banking and private equity. Beyond being in those um, businesses, were you ever raising capital for other companies in a private style like you are now? Or has it always been in that investment banking third party style? Yeah, no, I, I have um, a, a couple of times. Um, and and uh, like I said, um, different experiences. And, and, at, and at those times, I was not CEO. Uh, on one of those occasions, I was CFO. And on another occasion, I was a, a vice president of, of business development, corporate development. So um, yeah, th these two questions, I'm trying to tie them into one then. Yeah. Because being a, a recruiter and a consultant in talent acquisition myself, that I get hired by venture capitalists to put in their CEOs of either their first time CEOs or change management or new CEOs. There's this often question of, does the new coming CEO need fundraising experience or do they not? Can we take a high flyer who's coming out of corporate and maybe 13 years of Medtronic experience and they've never raised capital before, but everything else speaks about them saying, sure, they're probably the right person. Um, then other times it's, no, you better prove to me that they've raised capital, not once, but maybe three or four different times. And it, there's that process they, they need to know about. So yeah. your history of raising capital as an investment banker, as a private fundraiser in various capacities, um, private equity and looking at it from that angle. If you were hiring a CEO for a company that you were on the board for or whomever, do you think 
capital raising experience is a mandate or are there people out there who can jump in without ever having it and have the right interpersonal, intrapersonal skills to be able to figure it out? Is it a science or is it an art? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I hate to, uh, again, straddle the fence on this. I, it is a bit of both. Um, honestly, I, I do believe um, it, is not, it is not an absolute prerequisite in my mind to hire a CEO into a private company, and we're talking med tech here, um, who has done it before. And in some cases, it may even be a benefit that they haven't been scarred and done it before. But what, I, but, what I, but what I do believe in also saying that is that um, whoever you bring in has to, be a, has to be polished, has to be able to be comfortable selling, because after all, that's what this is. It's selling. Don't, let's, not be, let's not kid ourselves. Um, so they have to be able to sell an idea. They have to be able to sell themselves. They have to be able to put themselves in the shoe of the investor, the shoes of the investor, as they organize a process and go out. And they have to be flexible and 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 be evolutionary. They they have to adapt. If they can do that, if they've got those skill sets, then they don't have to have done it before, in my mind. And going back to the point that I think you wanted to touch a little bit more on the the CEO and the management team being able to be part of the capital raising experience. What did you want to share on that? Yeah. And, and um, I think that this is uh, one of the actual positive um, um, phenomenon coming out of COVID and the use of Zoom, right? Which is, um, you, you know, in my fundraising experience before, whether private and, you know, the other thing we haven't spoken about is So I, I took a company public my last, uh, in my last job. So I also have raised public money which is, a, which is a different experience, but has a lot of similarities as well. And you know, being able to understand the similarities and differences is another important thing. But back to um, your question on the team. So for me, uh, and I think this is new, being able to use Zoom and having the ability to you know, bring people into the pitch and into the conversation in a very seamless way through this tool, uh, is, is, is something that I think is a real benefit to uh, fundraising today versus the way fundraising was done even two years ago, where literally you would have to go on a, a roadshow. You'd have to go to Sand Hill Road or you know, Boston or San Diego, wherever you were going to pitch the venture capitalists, you'd have to go to the investment conferences, et cetera. Those are still great opportunities and those are still real or becoming real again. But the ability to use uh, these uh, conferencing tools and, and to bring parts of your team in to the discussion, I think is a real benefit. And I've certainly taken advantage of it. And particularly as a new CEO, um, having to get up, to, up the curve on the technology and the clinical, all the clinical details, having a very experienced person from my management team as my partner, uh, I've really improved the process. And I would, I would definitely recommend um, if you're a CEO, um, uh, don't be afraid of doing that. I know some people might have the perception, well, the CEO has to sell the round. And you know, if, if the CEO is not able to carry the day over the 30, 45 minute conversation, then you know, they're not worth their weight. I think that's nonsense. The bottom line is you have a team the CEO has to be able to articulate the vision, has to be able to articulate 
um, you know, the execution, uh, but, you know, you have a team and, and uh, the team's going to continue to execute on your behalf and, and bringing the right people in to fill in the gaps, I think is, is typically the right way to go. I love that. And we'll end on that. But I, I want to reiterate what you just said, because oftentimes when you read these articles or watch these movies or po- hear other podcasts, whatever it may be, you often hear about how it's very understood that the weight of the world on raising capital and telling that story is on the back of the CEO. Yeah. And it makes sense to a certain understanding of maybe having a main point of contact throughout the process, but there's so many facets, especially in a med tech organization, technology, commercialization, clinical, clinical. Yeah. whatever it may be. And yeah. to be able to have eloquent, sophisticated management teams be able to speak to those various facets in support of the CEO who's sharing that larger umbrella story, I think that's a much more powerful effect. And I mean, once again, knowing that there should be a point of contact, I think having the support of the team is is a wonderful addition. And and Giovanni, I think you've just brought the conversation full circle, right? Because you started the conversation uh, and the question by asking me about the lifeblood of med tech being people or capital or both. And and the reality is, um, you know, when that investor is ultimately um, sitting down with their uh, with their partners to make a decision on investing or not investing, you know, a key element of any stage company is whether they have belief in that team and in those people to go out and execute. And if you can share that you've got a uh, a strong, versatile um, uh, team around you. And I don't mean bringing five people into the pitch, right? I mean, just to be clear, uh, you know, I think one or two along with the CEO can be very effective and if choreographed and, uh, and, uh, and done the right way. But I think it, it does get back to your original question, which is at the end of the day, yes, technology is important. The clinical benefit of your technology is super important. Your commercial plan uh, and execution plan is super important, but none of it works uh, if there's not a belief that the team uh, can go out and make it happen. Well, I want to say thank you very much, Charlie Hooner, CEO of Modulum, for coming on MedTech Money. This has been absolutely very insightful from my perspective. And so once again, thank you for your time. Thank you for your insight and advice. And this is Two Boys from Buffalo, demystifying raising capital on MedTech Money. Thank you very much, Charlie. Go Bills. Thanks, Giovanni. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.